Hey, uh, I am so excited uh, for a couple of reasons, but there's, there's two types of people in the room right now, okay? And I'm trying to figure out which you are. There's the first group that is still holding on to the technical fact that it is summer. Who's in that place? Who's still saying, hey, it's summer. I'm going to hold on to every bit of it, all right? There's the second group that knows the truth. We in fall, baby. It's fall. We in fall. Fall is here. You know why? Because I was today years old when I realized that summer goes to like September 21st. I'm like, I don't care what y'all say because that's the same group of people that say every day is national something day. So I don't listen to y'all. Anyway, like to me, the summer ended when my vacation ended in school, right? So like summer vacation ended, summer's done. Now I'm in fall because I fell back into school. That's how I rationalize things. And so the reason I'm so excited about this because, man, I love the fall. The fall is my favorite season by far. You know, give me all of it. Give me the hoodies and the football and the donuts and the apple picking. And like that is plaid all day long. Like that is my jam. I absolutely love the fall. But apparently not as much as Pastor Izzy loves the fall. Where's Pastor? Is he here right now? He's in JV. That man already bought pumpkin donuts and pumpkin spice, and he's in church this morning wearing a hoodie. I said, man, he, he loves the fall more than I love the fall. But he's all in, right? And, and that's the idea of when you, when you love something, it's the object of your desire. It's the thing that you are just after. That's why somebody who loves the fall, you can't tell them not to get a pumpkin spice latte anymore. Like, as soon as they got on the menu, they were ordering it. And them stores, they know what they're doing. Starbucks and Dunkin', they know how to lure you in. I don't even think pumpkin tastes like that. I've never, it doesn't, I don't know what's in it. They made it up. It's totally manufactured. But they know how to get you because they're like the pumpkin spices back and everybody's pinkies go way in the air and Ugg boots magically land on women's feet and there is just this excitement. There's my fall buddy right there with the hoodie. Um, <laughs> I was just talking about how much you love fall and pumpkin spice and donuts. Um, and so, you know, there's this excitement with it and, and again, it's just, I, we're there. That's what I love and I want to embrace it and I want to enjoy it and, and I want to have it with all. I mean, like I said, some people, man, they're in it. Like you walk in their house right now and it smells of pumpkin spice and apple orchards. You know, some of y'all already went to Trader Joe's, got that one broom that smells like cinnamon. You ever had that? Good. That's a nice broom. So... You got all these things, right? And it's because it's, it's the object of your desire. You are all in. With everything in you right now, it is fall. I'm saying that because uh, I'm starting this morning a new series over the next month uh, that I'm titling tentatively right now, With Everything. And the Bible talks about in Luke chapter 10, there's a, a, a man, a lawyer, a, a leader of religious law who comes to Jesus and he asks him, a question. Listen, if you have your Bibles or if you want to look up at the screen, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28 says this. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Now, that word tested, it didn't necessarily mean he was trying to trap him or hurt him. This could have been a genuine question. He was just trying to call him out to say, hey, what's your opinion? What do you think? What do you say? He says, teacher... What should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. 
The man is asking, what's the recipe for life? And I think a lot of times when we read eternal life, we're thinking afterlife, but that's not necessarily what the author is meaning because the reality is everybody lives eternally, either heaven or hell, but it will be eternal. So we all have that immortality on the afterlife. We will all live forever with God or away from God. What he's saying though is when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a life that's connected to God that we can enjoy not only after, but currently where we're at today. What do I have to do to experience life to the fullest? What do I have to do to be able to have the life that God has called me to have? And I think that's what we're all really looking for. That's what we're all really searching for. And so what does Jesus say? Well, what does the scripture say? In Deuteronomy, Moses had given instructions to the Israelites. It was a prayer called the Shema. And the Shema was what he just quoted. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this was something they prayed every day as a reminder. There is one God and we are to love him with everything in us. And so this was something that was familiar to them. And then obviously we add the point and love your neighbor as yourself. And then people who read this chapter, we kind of really quickly brush into the next one because right away the follow-up question from this teacher is, well, who is my neighbor? And then you get into the story of the Good Samaritan and that's a very famous story. And we kind of overlook something. The problem I'm seeing when I was reading that is he jumps right into arguing or discussing about neighbor and who's your neighbor and how do you love your neighbor as if he's already accomplished the first part of the commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with everything, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And I think it's important that we don't brush over that because probably what most of us do is we consider that the free square on bingo, it's a given. Of course I love God. If most of you, if I were to come up to you and ask you, say, hey, do you love the Lord? I think the majority of us in this room would answer yes. But the truth is, I don't know if we love the Lord with everything. And so what we'd like to do over the next few weeks is to cover each one of those. What does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart? What does it look like to love God with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength? And this morning, I'd like to start with the first one. What does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart? Now, obviously, we know that the heart doesn't necessarily have emotions. It's symbolic for what the Lord is talking about. But when the Bible mentions your heart, it's not just talking about the muscle that pumps blood. When the Bible is talking about your heart, it's the wellspring of desire. It is what leads your passions. It is the object of what you are pursuing. It is what your, the Bible says, uh, where your heart is, there's where your treasure will be, right? Like there's a symbiotic balance between what you look for and what your heart is for. And so when God is saying, hey, I need you to love me with all your heart, what he's saying is, I want to be the object of your desire. I want to be your greatest passion. I want to be what you desire more than anything on this earth. And I think if we're honest and we do a heart check this morning, many of us, including me, may be falling short in loving God with all our heart. There's some heart issues that we might be having that I think it's important for us to address. And the first one, if you're taking notes, is maybe we have, or you have, a divided heart. Well, what's a divided heart? A divided heart is one that loves God, but is being pulled away to other things as well. 
Yeah, I, I love God, but I just don't only love God. I have some other things that I love, maybe as much as God, maybe sometimes even more than God. Now, this isn't necessarily something I think we would outwardly say or even admit, but I do think it's the reality of our life where there are situations, things that are constantly pulling for our attention, constantly trying to get us to notice them, constantly trying to drive us away from our first love. If you read in the Bible in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, here the author says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Listen, if you love the things of this world more than you love the Father, then the love of the Father is not in you. And again, I don't, we don't, I don't think we always do it. And sometimes we look at secular as always evil, but uh, you know, sometimes it can be that. Sometimes it, it can be an addiction that pulls you away from the love of the Father. It, it can be a bad habit that pulls you away from the love of a Father. It could be a sin issue, most definitely, that'll start to pull you away from the love of the Father. And sometimes those sin issues are subtle. They're not an overnight kind of thing, but it's an overtime kind of thing. It's a consistently, it's just like you're flirting with that thing and you flirt with it long enough and next thing you know, you've cheated on the Lord. You've betrayed your first love. You've walked away from the object of your desire because now someone else has caught your heart's eye. And, and we start to, to pull away. And you got to understand, uh, the Bible is very clear. The enemy's greatest tactic is to pull you away from God. When you look at Adam and Eve, right? The Bible says that they saw the fruit with their eyes and saw that it was good for eating. What happened? They took their eyes off the Lord and they started seeing the forbidden fruit and it looked appealing to them and so now it became their heart's desire. Didn't matter that they can have all the other fruit in the garden. Doesn't matter that they had domain over everything else. It's the one thing they couldn't have that all of a sudden they're like, but I want that. And listen, that happens to us, right? Especially if you've been serving the Lord for a long time, you start to wonder, well, why can't I do that? Oh, how come everybody else gets to do that? You know, how come everybody else gets to take off for Labor Day and not go to church and I got to show up to church? I'm sure a couple of husbands or wives were asking that this morning. And I'm not knocking you, by the way, if you're watching online. Thank you for watching online. Enjoy your weekend. <laughs> but what I am saying is it's very easy for these sin issues to start to pull you away and take your attention away from what God wants for you. And again, if going back to the story with Adam and Eve, it, it's that fruit they are like, man, it looks good. It looks tantalizing. I want it. And yet if they had their eyes on the Lord, if they fixed their eyes and he was the object of their desire, they would realize that he offers literally so much more than what the serpent was offering with the one tree. But it's not just bad things that can divide our hearts. I'm not saying you don't love God. A divided heart is one that loves God, but is also starting to love some other things. But listen, Matthew chapter 10, this is a hard verse to read. Matthew 10, 37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a hard verse to hear. What is God saying? If you love your mom and dad more than me, you're not worthy of being my disciple. If you love your children more than you love me, you're not worthy of being my desire. And the truth is, some of us come to, maybe not even just in reading, but in the realities of life where we're being tested in that area, and we choose our family over God. 
And, and again, I think because church has always been built or for a long time has been built around the family unit, we justify it. Hey, we're spending quality time with our family. We're investing in our family. And God's like, that's true. You're having vacations, you're taking time, you're, you're having fun, you're going out to eat. That's great. But you just didn't include me in your family anymore. You stopped making me a priority. Pastor Izzy was literally calling down the house last week reminding you that what you are chasing after is what our children will chase after. And so we read this scripture and it's hard for us to understand and it seems very harsh, but as I was thinking about it, this isn't out of the norm. We do this all the time because God didn't say you can't love your mother, father, or you can't love your families. What he said was, if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of being my disciple. It's about the priorities. It's about who you love first, who you love most. And here's the truth. We make those kinds of demands all the time. You know how I know? Think about this, and man, I really pray to God I'm not opening a can of worms here, but if it is, this is between you and the Lord now. You can talk to me later if we gotta walk through this. But here's the truth. I say you get married, right? Or let's say you're already married. And wives, let's just use this for an example. You marry a man, and he loves his mom more than he loves you. And so mom gets priority over you all day long. Now, these are real life situations. So if I'm causing some issues, husband, you better, you better repent. <laughs> because the reality is the Bible tells us that a man must leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. Meaning, yes, I'm not saying stop loving your parents, but this is like my wife is now my family. Like, that's my family. Now, it doesn't mean that my parents are no longer my family or my sisters are no longer my family and that I don't love them. Absolutely, I love them. But my wife demands a different priority as my wife. She gets that, and I get that. In the same way, if she loved her dad more than me, I would have issues. If I felt like I was constantly competing with her father for her affection, I would have an issue. And I think most of us in this room understand that. So why is it different for the Lord? When the Lord says, hey, I want to be the object of your desire. You committed to me. You wanted the gift of salvation. You said yes to a relationship with me. I made you a priority, so I'm asking you, would you make me a priority of your life? Would you allow me to be the first love of your life? Or let's take the next step. Let's not just spouse. There's plenty of marriages that have been ruined because they prioritize their children above their spouses. They love their kids more than they love their spouse. And we've been taught for some way in culture that this is right, to love your children over your spouse. But here's the reality. One day, God willing, my daughters will meet somebody and they'll start their own families. And I'm left with Sicily. And if I'm not cultivating that right now, that's going to be a problem for me down the line. But the truth is I love my wife. And when they're gone, she's who I have left. There are so, I've seen it, and, then, and I hope to God that this doesn't become you, but there are so many marriages that when the children leave their home, they realize we've been strangers for the last 20 years. We were only ever together because of the kids, and we never learned to love each other because we loved our kids more than we loved each other. This isn't right. The best thing I can do to love my children is to love their mother, to be that kind of husband and to be that kind of wife. And so when they see that, they example that, and then they bring it down. I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm touching some toe. That's the Holy Spirit, not me. Take it up with the Lord. 
That's his word. But that's what God's saying. Don't prioritize people over me. If you love me with all your heart, make sure it's all of it, not part of it. Because when you allow yourself to love God with a divided heart, don't be surprised when eventually you're loving God with a distant heart. Well, what's a distant heart? A distant heart, it's easy to drift away from a heart for God. It's when we just start going through the motions of our spiritual life. It's going through the motions of church. We come in, we sit down in the seat that we always sit in, we stand up during the songs, we sit down when the songs are over, maybe we say something if we feel like it, if we're in a good mood that day and it's not cloudy. We, we listen to when pastor's saying, we chuckle when the joke is good, we stay awkwardly silent when it's not, we just do what we do, and then as soon as I hear that amen, I am halfway out the door, in my car going home, rinse, repeat next week. There's no actual relationship with God. There's no intimacy. There's no pursuit of God's presence. It's just church now. It's just religion. There's no joy in coming to encounter the Lord to everyone. Like, listen, I'm gonna be very transparent here. There should be a joy when you walk in this house with God's people to worship with God's people. Like, I get lifted up. I get excited. I feel like I'm at home. I'm with my peoples. Listen, like, when I, like we mentioned earlier, I like football, right? When I go to a football game, let's be honest, I get a better view from my couch on the TV. I get better angles. I get better sound. It's temperature control because Soldier Field, thank God we're moving. Like, there's all this stuff. The only good thing about going to a game live is being among the people. It's the energy that comes we're in this together. High-fiving perfect strangers at the ballpark. I don't know this guy, but I'm hugging him. Like, yeah, we're amazing. Like, he could be a serial killer. I don't know. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Like, but because we have this shared joy, it lifts up the room. Versus at my home, yes, I got a better view, but you can ask my wife. But there's a lot of times I'm just going to be very open and sad. Where she just sees me there sitting by myself after the kids have been putting to sleep on the DVR watching the Bears game, going, <laughs> texting the guys, what did you see that? How I long to just be around the community. How I long to be with God's people. See, when you have a distant heart, it's not just how you drift away from God, it's that you end up drifting away from God's people as well. You don't fellowship. You don't connect, you don't serve, you don't get apart. You just, I can usually tell when somebody is creating a distant heart because they slowly start cutting off relationships within the church. And they start missing one week and two weeks and three weeks and all of a sudden we're just sitting there like, where's so-and-so been? And then it always kind of makes me laugh because oftentimes they'll get upset like, you guys didn't even notice I'm gone. It's like, no, you did it so subtly. How would we have? Like you just slowly drifted away. And I'm sorry, but it's not always the church's responsibility to hunt you down when you have actively chosen to walk away, okay? And I, I, we'd like to, you know? We always quote, oh, what about Jesus? He left the 99 to go after the one. The one was lost because if you keep reading that chapter, the prodigal son also left, but the father didn't chase him because the prodigal son chose to leave. He chose to distance himself from his father's house. And so I'm not trying to get into a whole nother summon, although I could on all that topic. But here's the truth. Like when you have a distant heart, what happens is you justify your distance because, well, nobody came and got me. Well, nobody talks to me and nobody does this and nobody does that. And you know, you're part of nobody, right? Like 
you can also do that. The phones do work both ways nowadays. We got into that technology. There's no joy when you come in encounter with the Lord. You just show up and you pay lip service. Matthew 15, verse 7 through 9 says it like this. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. He said, all this that you're doing, all this demonstrative nature, you know, the respectful standing up quietly and then sitting down quietly, that's, it's, vain. it's vain. It doesn't really count for anything. It's respectful, I guess. Pastor Jason probably appreciates it, but I'm sure he'd appreciate it more if you engaged in worship, if you engaged in the process of the Lord. And it's not just in this room because you can fake everybody in this room. But it's about churning the religious machine without actually having intimacy with the Lord. It would be like me my, as a husband and as a father. Like I show up every day, but I don't play with my kids. I don't love my wife. I'm just there. You know, it's like, what do you want? I, I, I pay for stuff. I show up, pay the rent, get off my back, leave me alone. And the reality is they could care less for all of that. They want me more than they want what I'm giving them. And a person who has become distant from the Lord only wants what God gives, not who God is. You can tell if your hearts are drifting in subtle ways. Like I said, when your worship lacks joy and excitement that it once had, when you start getting cynical about the church. Oh, well, the church is this and the church is that. See, there's, there's another celebrity pastor that fell. I knew church is always like this and the church is always like that. I'm sorry, we're part of the church. So whatever issue we see in the church, and there are issues in the church, is because we're in it. And I tell my wife, I'm cynical about the church, but only in the sense that I want to make it better. So I complain about things that I'm actively trying to improve. <laughs> it's not okay to be cynical just for cynical sake. It's not okay to talk bad about the church and then not be trying to do anything actively to make it better. Oh, you know, Pastor Joey, his, his sermons are this and blah, 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 and I can't believe he wore Air Force Ones and blah, 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 and everybody immediately looked at my shoes. Um, <laughs> you know what would be a lot more helpful? Hey, come and talk to me about it. We may not even agree but at least you can share your heart with the person that matters, not with somebody. Why are you talking to everybody else about me? Talk to me about it. Let's, let's, let's work through it. Pray for me. If you got an issue with what I'm doing and how I'm doing, pray for me. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide me. Ask the Holy Spirit to help me. But a person with a divided heart has a cynical nature about them. A person with a divided heart, they stop making personal time with God a priority. You do it when you do it. You get to it when you get to it. I get a lot of young students who ask me all the time, you know, how do you make time for God? I said, I don't. I make time for everything else around God. God has to be the priority, and then you schedule everything else around your priority. Watch the warning signs when it comes to drifting, because a drifting heart can easily turn into the third thing, a cold heart. What's a cold heart? A cold heart is when you go through all the motions, but you're not even there anymore. There's a number of people, particularly during the pandemic, who began deconstructing their faith and came to the conclusion that they didn't believe in God anymore. People who started pulling at the threads of their faith, unraveling it only to discover that there's no God in their eyes, that God doesn't exist, or at least that they're not willing to serve him anymore. And I think what happens oftentimes is those people had been doing a thing for God but had either lost or never had a heart for God. And that's why when you unravel it, there's nothing there because it was built on nothing. There was no substance to it. It was religion. 
It was showing up, clocking in and clocking out, joining small groups, serving a capacity. You can do all those things and not have a heart for God. You can preach the gospel and not have a heart for God. We've seen it. How many times have we seen people with giant platforms fall from grace because their hearts were not where their mouth was? And the Bible is clear, from the depths of your heart, the mouth shall speak. Some of that leaks out, but you could fool people. You just can never fool God. The problem is with a lot of people who have deconstructed is they were missing the greatest why to their relationship with God. They didn't know why they had it. A lot of times people, when you ask them, well, why do you believe what you believe? It's usually because, well, I was raised that way. Okay, but at some point in your evolution and your growth, your relationship with God needs to become your own. At some point, being raised in church was not enough. Because I hear people claim that like it's a bad job. Well, I was raised in church. So what? What does that mean? Lucifer was raised in heaven. Didn't mean much for him either. All right? So what does it mean that you were raised in church if you never took the relationship with God personally? If you never actively pursued God in and of himself? And here's the truth. God will never allow you to skip over the why. God could care less about all the things you do if there's not a relationship with him. In the book of Revelation, there's a number of letters that Jesus is writing to seven churches. To one church in particular, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter two, verse two through four, listen to what he says to them. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have preserved and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That sounds like a great admonishment, right? He says, man, I, I know how hard Belmont works. I know that you guys have put on these events and, and how you've endured during the pandemic when everything was shut down and you guys held it together and, and we're back in and you're growing. And man, I see how you're serving the youth and how you're taking care of the children and how you're doing all these outreach efforts. I see all that. And man, I commend you on that. But I still hold one thing against you. I hold this against you. What he says, I hold this against you. You know what he's saying? He's saying, none of that covers up this one issue. You have forsaken the love you had at first. None of what we do for God matters if we don't love him. If we are not a church, if we are not a people, if you are not an individual who loves the Lord, then everything you do for the Lord is in vain. If you don't love God, if you don't have a passion for God, if you don't have intimacy with the Lord, if you are not in relationship with the Lord, notice it doesn't say you lost your first love. This isn't something that has just walked away from us or, or drifted away from us. They have forsaken. To forsake means you abandoned the first love. You have chosen to no longer put in the effort like you used to. You don't love God like you did at first. You know, sometimes... We might even be cynical about this, where we see new believers and their passion and their excitement, you know, like our brother that got baptized the other day and his hands lifted up and is shouting. And sometimes in our cynical nature, we say, yeah, yeah, that'll go away. Yeah, you know, I was like that too when I first got saved. I remember being passionate like that when I first got saved. But that's what he's talking about. You don't love me like you did at first. 
You're not as excited about me like you used to be excited. Remember when you would open up the scriptures and then your face would light up because I was starting to talk to you and, and you were starting to understand all these complexities and, and I was just reading your mail and you remember that excitement? You remember that excitement when you came in? Listen, I, I laugh about this because when I first came to Excel as a 15-year-old, we were not what you would call high-tech. Okay, the walls were an ugly yellow. I think at that time, we've got some weird colors in this room. Uh, we had, you know, I remember Mark was in charge of the, the projector. Remember the, the ones that you had to have the slide thing on? And on the fly, you're like, Oop. you know, he would write that thing. The worship team was a joyful noise. And I was thoroughly impressed because the youth pastor brought out a, a little TV on a car and put a cassette in and showed a little clip from a movie. And I was like, this church is amazing. <laughs> wow. But I should be in just as much awe today. Not because we have digital screens and because the worship team is phenomenal and because the speaker's so handsome, but because... <laughs> <laughs> They laughed harder at that joke than they should have. <laughs> no, no, I should have that same awe because it's the same God. It's the same God. Like he is just as great today as he's ever been. If anything, my joy should be greater because my understanding of God has grown. My joy and my excitement and my love for God should be better than it's ever been because I'm closer than I've ever been. So every day of my life, my desire, my goal is to love the Lord my God more than I've ever loved him before. We do that in our relationships, or at least we should try to strive for that in our relationships. We should strive for that in our relationship with God. Worship team, if you can help me out. But here's the reality of all of this. It seems impossible to love God with all our heart. Because there are other things that we love if we're just being real. There are moments where maybe the, the zeal is not where it needed to be. There are all lows and, and peaks and valleys sometimes in our walk with God. There are seasons where maybe our hearts become a little distant from the Lord and, and we don't feel him like we used to and we don't desire him like we used to. I, I understand all that. But here's what I also understand. That what God calls you to he equips you for. So God has called you to love him first, to make him the priority, to love him with everything. And how did he equip us? 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. So simple. See, this isn't something you have to drum up and psych yourself up for. You're not gonna have to stand outside the church and slap your face, pump your chest, like, okay, I gotta, I gotta make, I gotta get there. No, you know what you gotta do? You just gotta think about that for a moment. He loved me first. Before he redeemed me, he loved me. Before he saved me, he loved me. Before I was any good or and in my worst, the Bible tells us that while you were at your worst, Christ died for you. He didn't wait for you to become worthy of his love. He already loved you. See, loving God with all our heart is simply our heart responding to his heart. That's what that is. 
And when your heart responds to the heart of God, the love of God naturally pours out of you. <laughs> so incredibly simple. So I'm going to ask you to stand. And I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. We live in a world that is literally dying to be loved. We live in a world where people are dying to be loved and they're settling for likes on social media. They're settling for artificial love through computers and AI. They're settling for love that comes from abusive and hurtful people. But the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, right now in this moment is reminding you, not just us, you, sir, ma'am, you specifically, that I love you. With all your issues, with your mental health issues, with your sin baggage, with your insecurities, with your inabilities, with your defaults, with your anger issues, with your bitterness, I still love you. And the Bible is clear, there is nothing that will ever separate us from the love of God. No height, nor depth, nor hell, or anything in between that could ever stop God from loving you. And I don't know if you're in this place and you feel like, you know, but I've drifted so far, Pastor. I don't feel like I deserve God's love. Well, if God only gave love to those who deserved it, we'd all be in trouble. Oh, it was, it was never about deserving it. It was about receiving it from the one who wants to give it. So here's what I'd like us to do for just a few minutes. As you reflect on the love of God for you, the worship team is going to lead us in a song. And I want you to hold off your singing until you're singing it with the love of God. I want you to just, just sit on it for a moment. We're, we're okay. I want you to sit on it for a moment. And then when your heart is ready, I want you to allow your heart to respond to the heart of God. <laughs> 